0: Delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you and eager to study with us. I hope you'll make your plans to be back with us this evening at 5:30. We'll be looking at Psalm 95 in our study this evening, so you might want to read through the 95th Psalm, just a few verses there, and we will be doing a textual exegesis of Psalm 95 tonight. Been to asked if I would address the question of the relevance of the Scriptures. And how do we know that the scriptures are relevant to our time? Let's begin with this thought, and that is that to many people, the Bible seems like it's just out of date. Described in these words, as one pins the concept, that sure the Bible was relevant once upon a time in that long ago era of shepherds and scribes, the story of how the Hebrew people emerged from their country out of slavery in Egypt is a gripping account, but does it have any connection with my world of lightning-fast emails and jet travel? The problem of a fish swallowing a disobedient prophet named Jonah and how to get Daniel out of the lion's den seemed pretty far removed from fixing my transmission and resurrecting my hard drive. crashed hard drive. Uh, crashed hard drive. For a soccer mom racing her kids to the dentist, is there any relevance to the story of how Elijah saw the killing 400 prophets of the God of Baal? Can we relate to all such strange and mystifying events today? And to many people, all of the stories of the Bible doesn't seem to have any relevance to me at all. What good does it do me to study the prophet Isaiah when I'm battling with some problem at work? And I can't relate to that. That doesn't help me. I need something I need. (coughs) These Old Testament passages and even New Testament stories of the parables and the, uh, and the miracles of Christ and the disciples travel. That's all well and good, but how does that relate to me at all, the problems I'm facing in the current world? Closely related to that question is the idea of situation ethics. Situation ethics has been advanced a number of, by a number of people a number of years ago. Joseph Fletcher made it most well known. That concept of situation ethics is also known as the new morality. You may hear someone talk about the new morality movement. They're talking about situation ethics. Another way it's been described is contextualism, and another one is ethic individualism. All of those are saying the same thing of situation ethics, closely related to the Catholic concept of mental reservation. Catholics believe in mental reservation, which means that there are some occasions where you can lie... If it's necessary to do so. Most of the time lying is wrong. And so we ought to follow the principle of honesty at all times. But there are some occasions where lying will be acceptable. And that fits under the category of mental reservation. That is situation ethics. Here's how situation ethics works. Situation ethics says there is no absolute right versus wrong. There is right versus wrong. But there is no absolute hard line that's to be drawn. They tell us that moral behavior is relative, and it varies from person to person, and decisions are to be made depending on the situation. So there isn't a hard, fast book of rules we follow, but we make decisions based upon the circumstance. We'll see more about that as we unfold. Joseph Fletcher, who wrote the book Situation Ethics, compared three themes that he said. Let's understand where situation ethics fits. He says... There are those that are legalistic. That's what he would call us. And we would be legalistic, and the legalist is the person who enters into every decision-making situation with a whole apparatus of prefabricated rules and regulations. Those are Joseph Fletcher's words. Now that's what we do. We enter into every situation with prefabricated laws and rules so that when I am tempted to lie, I can say, no, 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 I can't do that because these rules say not to. And, and when I may be tempted to steal, and it may do some good to steal, I say, no, 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 I can't do that. Here's my prefabricated rules. On the opposite end of that, antinomianism is a concept that Fletcher says is where one enters decision-making armed with no principles or rules or maxims. In other words, you have no rules. You just do whatever you want. It's open in chaotic world. He says situation ethics fits in right in the middle of that where you're armed with ethical maxims and rules and principles, and you're prepared though in any situation to compromise those and set them aside if the situation of love is better served. So even for example, fornication is wrong most occasions, but there may be an occasion where... This might be permissible because it serves the principle of love. Stealing might be, and lying may be acceptable. That's situation ethics. So it varies from person to person. You can't say absolutely lying is always wrong. Fornication is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. That's the concept of situation ethics. We live in a day of not only modernism, but postmodernism. And let me see if I can illustrate the difference between the two. This is not original with me, but someone has illustrated pre-modern concepts as illustrated by the dot where because God put it there and that's the way it's always been. That would describe my concept and I think your concept about rules and regulations. Why is lying wrong? Because God said so, there it is, and it's always been that way and it always will be that way. Stealing is wrong because God said so and that's the way it's always been, that's the way it always will be. That's a pre-modern concept. Modernism fits into all areas of life, but when it comes to religion, modern, modernism came about in the, uh, the movement of religion, came about in the 50s and in the 40s and the 50s and on into the 60s. And this concept of modernism more is described by this era upward of onward and upwards with progress. Modernism denied inspiration, modernism denied the miraculous. While holding to some principle, yes, there are rules and there are regulations and there is right versus wrong. Modernism took away the miraculous and inspiration out of the scriptures. Now you see where that's headed. If we take away the inspiration of the scriptures, these are good stories. These are good maxims to follow. But the Bible is not inspired. The miraculous stories didn't happen. Then we're headed to something more progressive which leads to the concept of postmodernism. And someone illustrated it this way where it's just mass chaos. So that even in our present day we have a hard time figuring out our sexual identity. You don't know if you're a male or a female and you can self-identify as a male when you might be a female. Or you could maybe even self-identify as an animal I suppose. That's the postmodernistic concept. There are no rules. It's utter chaos where in modernism there was at least some rules to try to be followed. Let's talk about the word relevant. The word simply means appropriate to the current time, or the period, or the circumstance of contemporary interest. And so our question at hand today, is the Bible relevant? Our question then is this, does the Bible fit modern man, or is it out of date? So am I reading something that's so old and so ancient That it really doesn't fit with me when i get up in the morning and i go to work and i'm struggling with modern problems and your computer is not working and your microwave is not doing what it should and you're frustrated with some of the modern problems of technology how do these old stories relate to you and do they relate to you or is it out of date that's the question so our question for today is is the bible still relevant today let's pursue that question with three points Is the Bible still relevant today? I think every person present would say, oh yes, it's relevant today, but how do I show that? How do I go about establishing that point, and how do I demonstrate for my own sake and for someone else's sake, the Bible is still relevant? Let's start with this. Relevance is based upon reliability. Relevance is based upon reliability. That's why I mentioned modernism a moment ago. Modernism took the Bible and stripped the miraculous from it. So the miraculous never happened. Jonah never was swallowed up by a well. Theistic evolution was a form of modernism. God didn't really do it the way the Bible tells us. Modernism stripped the inspiration out of the scriptures. So basically modernism told us this book is not reliable, which led then to the postmodernistic concept. That utter chaos takes place because we have been told for years and years, we can't trust this book and it's, it's, it's fabricated in some areas. It may have some good principles, but it really lied to us when it said they were miraculous and it was inspired. So we can't trust this book anymore. So let's start with this concept that relevance is based upon reliability. If God exists and the Bible is true, then the Bible is relevant. If God exists and the Bible is true, then the Bible is relevant. Let's understand this principle. Modernism, postmodernism, and situation ethics are all rooted in atheism. Understand what that says and what it doesn't say. Not everybody who believed in situation ethics or followed modernism or postmodernism is an atheist. That's not what we said. But they're rooted in the concept of atheism. And that is when you begin to, to reject in modernism the inspiration of the scriptures and the miraculous, then you're saying God wasn't right in what he said. Situation ethics, when I say, well, sometimes lying is okay, I'm denying what God said. And so whether you're talking about situation ethics or you're talking about postmodernism or modernism, they're all saying God didn't mean what he said, so that is rooted in a concept of atheism. So let's talk about some evidence that God exists. I want to give some brief evidence of that. This is not our point this morning. To explore thoroughly the concept of evidence of God. But if I can show evidence that there is a God and his word is true, I have proven the Bible is relevant for today. So let's look at two things. I want us to see that evidence is seen within creation itself. So let's open our Bibles to Psalm 19, if you will. Bible writers... Both Old and New Testament pointed to creation as evidence that God exists. Notice Psalm 19 now. We won't read all of verses 1 through 6, but I want you to notice you are familiar with verse 1 and verse 2, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day and the day utter speech, night and the night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. He goes on to talk about the, the what we learn from the sun, but here's the point I want you to see. That he says that the heavens declare his glory and the firmament shows his handiwork. What the psalmist does in Psalm nineteen is point to the world that now exists and says, From that we should understand that there is a God. It is the fool that has said, there is no God. So I learned from looking at creation, and we'll look at that argument more in detail in just a moment, at least the general guideline of that argument, but that's his point. Let's go to Romans chapter 1 and in verse 20. The argument had not changed by the New Testament times. The Apostle Paul talks about the Gentile world had no reason for living as Gentiles. That is, living as pagans and as heathens. Look at verse 20. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 he said for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Same point made in Psalm 19. So Old Testament New Testament writers point to the world that exists and says from that we should conclude there indeed is a God. Those passages point to two kinds of arguments. What we may have labeled as the cosmological and teleological argument. What is that? That sounds kind of convoluted and, and kind of fancy. But what that simply means is the fact that there is a cosmos, a world, argues that there is a cause behind that. That was the argument of Psalm 19. That's the argument of Romans 1. Because the world exists, that tells us there is a cause behind that. There is a second argument, the teleological argument, is the argument from design. We see that in Psalm 19. That the design of creation, the complexity thereof, argues that there is a designer. So the fact that the world exists tells us, indeed, there is a God. But let's go to another argument. Let's notice the resurrection of Christ. We're trying to give evidence that God exists. The kind of evidence that you can cite to your friend and your neighbor... When you may not have a shelf full of evidence books, and you may not be able to talk about the scientific in detail, you can talk about the world that exists and how that that argument argues for a cause and a designer. But you can also talk about the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is evidence that God exists. When we can point that the historical Jesus was placed into the tomb, he was killed, and he was placed into the tomb... And three days later, the tomb was empty. The empty tomb is the strongest evidence that can be cited for the resurrection of Christ. You say, why do you say it's the strongest? That was the argument made in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost to the very ones who had seen him go into the tomb. That was the argument they were making. That the tomb is now empty. Here's what an angel said in Matthew 28 and in verse 6. Matthew 28 and verse 6, an angel announced, come see the place where he lay. In other words, the angel is saying, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. In Luke chapter 24 and in verse 3, the disciples came and they found not the body of Jesus. In other words, they looked into the tomb and the tomb is empty. That fact was admitted by all. It was admitted by the disciples. It was admitted by the soldiers that were guarding it. That's why they fabricated the story that it was stolen. Here's the big question. How did the tomb become empty? It either became empty because someone stole the body, which was impossible for the disciples to do, and unreasonable for the enemies to do. Or he didn't really die, which was impossible because they pierced his side and there came out blood and water, which means his heart was ruptured. Or thirdly, the tomb was really empty because Jesus was really raised from the dead. The empty tomb is a strong argument that says there is a God, God exists, Jesus is the Son of God, and whatever God says is true. And if those principles be true, then we know then that the Bible is relevant. Let's go to Acts 17 now. That being true, I'm trying to argue for the fact that relevance is based upon reliability. Let's go to Acts chapter 17 now. This is where Paul is preaching in Mars Hill in Athens. He's preaching to a group of people who are worshiping to the unknown God. That is, they have idolatry in their hearts he preaches to them about the one true and living God and I want us to begin at verse 24 and notice what he says God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needs anything since he gives to life give to all life and breath and all things and is made of one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the bounds of their habitation, so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope after him and find him, though he be not far from each one of us. Now let's see what we just learned from that. I just learned from that that since God exists, God now has answers for us. What do you mean God has answers? Well, man came from God and not some kind of God man has created. In other words, the God we serve is the God that created man. There is evidence of the existence of this God. And since there is evidence of the existence of a God who created man, then this is not a case where man has somehow created a God, and man has all the answers, and whatever we think the God has said, it's not relevant to me. But furthermore, I'm seeing that God knows our needs. How do I know? Let's go back. This one true and living God... He's not worshiped with the man's hands as though he needs anything. He gives to all life and breath and all things. We are dependent upon him. He's not dependent on us. That's the point we're making. So God has answers for us. If there is a God, he is alive and he's real and his word is true, then he has answers for us in the scriptures which tell us what we need. Let's go further. And let's consider the word of God stands the test of time. Now we've already established there is a God and his word is true. But does does this word ever go out of date? You know, there's some books that are out of date and you can say, well, we can't rely on this science book anymore because we've learned some scientific principles since this book was published. And and what we thought was fact then is not fact anymore because we've we've determined those those were wrong. Even history, though it may be a true book, historical books need to be updated because there's more history now. Does the Bible need to be updated at all? Well, let's see. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 25, and I want you to get the point in its context, what it's really saying, and not really talking about what we often think it is talking about. It's not talking about individuals in our lives. We quote this passage, and not inappropriately at a funeral, that all flesh is as grass and the flower grass. So we all die in the time. There's no way he's talking about nations. That's how it was used in Isaiah, from which he's quoting. His point is nations come and go. So let's begin back at verse 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, what does he say about the word of God, which lives and abides forever, doesn't die, it's still alive, and it abides forever. Now, what's his point? Now, he quotes from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 said it, verse 24 here in our text, all flesh is as grass. He's talking about nations. That's how Isaiah was using it. A nation comes and a nation goes. And all the glory of man is the flower of glass and the the grass withers and the flower there falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. The comparison is nations come and go. The Roman Empire rose and became powerful and then it's gone. Just like grass comes up and it, it lives and then dies. The Soviet Union rose up in power and flourished like grass and then it's gone. The United States rose up and it's flourished and one day if time prevails it'll be gone. Nations come and go. Not talking about individuals, but nations come and go. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Do you think when the Soviet Union was at its strength, and if someone said, now the Soviet Union is going to fall and it's going to collapse, or the Roman Empire is going to fall and it will collapse, but the word of God now is, is what's going to last forever, they would have laughed you to scorn. Because that book is out of date. The nation's going to last, no, no, the the Soviet Union, it'll last for, I don't know. And the Roman Empire, it's going to last for a long, long time. But both of those are gone, and the Word of God's still here. It has stood the test of time. Let's look at another passage. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. I like the rendering of the English Standard Version. The Word of God is quick and powerful, the King James says. The English Standard says it is living and active. This is not a dead letter. This is not something that's dead, and you say, Well, you know, it really doesn't mean anything to me. It's alive. And it's active today. I mean it's relevant to us. It hasn't gone out of date at all. Here's the second thing we want to consider. Relevance is based upon reliability. We could stop at this juncture and we've answered our question. And we ought to walk away with saying, you know what, the Bible is as relevant today as it ever has been because I know there is a God, and I know His Word is true, and I know the Word of God is living and active and more powerful than a sharp-edged sword, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and it, it outlasts nations. But let's answer this question now. Let's talk about the Bible meeting modern man's needs. I want you to understand that man's problems and needs have not changed. You say, oh yeah, they have changed. You say, we're different from ancient man. Of the Old Testament times. Oh no. We're not any different. See man today is no different than man in the Old Testament times. Or New Testament times. Sin hasn't changed. We'll come back to this passage a little later. Sin is still a transgression and a violation of the law of God. 1 John 3 and verse 4. The only thing that has changed is how man commits the sin. The sin had not changed. Let me illustrate that. For example, stealing is still stealing. Stealing is still wrong. But how a man does that may be different. You might have stole a shekel in Old Testament times. But now you can steal someone's identity electronically. You couldn't do that in Bible times. But stealing is still stealing. It hadn't changed just how we do that. Let me illustrate that again. Let's say, for example, envy. Envy in Bible times might have been when your neighbor got a new camel and you were envious of his his good-looking camel when yours was old and wore out. And now you might be envious of his SUV. It's still the same thing. It's no different. They just didn't have SUVs back then. And we don't have camels around today in our country as far as transportation. Let's go again. Perhaps this one's even easier to see. Murder is still murder. Taking someone else's life. In the Bible times it might have been with a sword or with a stone. Today it might be with an AR-15. It's still the same thing. It's no different, murder's no different than it was when Cain kill, uh, killed Abel, was it? It's no different than, than when we have people taking stones and stoning someone to death or taking an AR-15, it's no different. Just how you do that. Let's go again. Gossip, or maybe slander, in the New Testament or Old Testament times, it might have had to be done in person, but now we can send it around the world by text. There's no different. How you sin is what's different, not what constitutes sin. The standard hasn't changed. The standard hasn't changed at all. So what I'm telling you is that man is no different and his needs are no different than they were in Old Testament times or New Testament times. You see, modern man can identify with ancient man in the Bible. You say, how so? Well, let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2, 3. Take chapter 3 for example. Well, let's start in chapter 2. God gave man a rule. That he understood. But man, when he was tempted in chapter 3, yielded to the temptation, and then they defended themselves by pointing their finger in some other direction. Is that any different than today? God's given us a rule. We're tempted. We violate that. And then we start pointing the finger. Ablaze. Man, it's no different. We can identify with that story is my point. You say, well, I've never eaten a fruit of a tree where a serpent was telling me. That's not the point. You can identify with the story, can't you? Same thing with Cain and Abel, the jealousy that arose, where one was doing right and the one who did right was injured by the one who was doing wrong because he was envious of him. We can identify with that story. Larry mentioned the case of uh, Jezebel and Ahab in Bible class this morning, where here's a man didn't get what he wanted and he pouted for that. We can identify with that. We can identify with all of those stories. Now let's spend some time talking about how the Bible addresses man's needs. And I'm not going to, my purpose here is I want to list about 10 things here where man has these needs and the Bible addresses those needs. I'm not trying to be thorough here, but just before us the concept, here is a need man has and the Bible addresses that need. It's very relevant for our day. Let's start with it. Man needs to know the origin. Where'd he come from? Scientists are pursuing that all the time. If if maybe we can send something to Mars or maybe to Pluto or, or whatever, we maybe can figure out where life came from. The Bible addresses that question. It tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke it, Psalm 33, and it was done. Exodus 31 says he did it in six days. So those questions about the origin, how long did it take? What was it something that took millions of years? The Bible answers those questions. It answers our need. We need to know about our origin. I'll tell you something else. We need to know our purpose in life. What's life all about? Philosophers have spent years and years trying to figure out what's life all about. And Solomon pursued that question. And he finally came to the end by inspiration and said that man should fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole of man. So it addresses our purpose in life. I'll tell you something else it addresses. The problem of sin. And what does it say? Well, it tells us a great deal about the problem of sin. It defines sin for us. You want to know what sin is? It's a transgression of the law. It tells us who's guilty of sin. If we're trying to figure out, well, if if we've got a big problem with sin, who is it that's guilty? Well, all men become guilty. Romans 3 and verse 23. Well, when does one become a sinner? When he reaches the point of being accountable. Romans 7 and verse 9. Well, what about the consequences of sin? Well, it brings death. Romans 5 and verse 12. Well, where is there a remedy for sin? Well, Jesus said his blood that we might have the remission of our sins. And God demands obedience, conditions to be met. Hebrews chapter 5. I'm just trying to get before you. Man's needs are being addressed. That's his greatest need. A problem with sin. But we're not through Here's Something else that's addressed. How to find happiness. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Man is after happiness. He's searching after happiness. We just did a... uh, a workbook on happiness not long ago. And one of the passages that kept coming again and again to our mind is Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are are those who mourn, and blessed are those who meet, and blessed are those who are hungry. That very word translated blessed or blessed is translated happy in other passages like the book of Acts. And what Jesus is saying, here is the true source to happiness. You want to be happy? It's not found in materialism, nor in getting even, but recognizing your poverty before God, verse 3. Mourning for your sin, being meek, being disciplined, a desire to be righteous, caring for others, and on down the line we go. The Bible gives us a key for being happy. So you want to be happy? The Bible answers that, that question. But what else it does? It addresses the problem of relationships. Most of our problems in life come because of relationship problems. Like Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The whole chapter of Romans 12 addresses relationships. Our relationship to God, our relationship to our fellow man generally, our relationship to our brethren, our relationship to our enemies. Next chapter our relationship to civil government. So you see, the Bible addresses family relationships, business relationships, government relationships. All that's being addressed right here in the book. That's relevant to our time. We have government, we have business, we have families. We have people we have to relate to. Here's something else, racial prejudice. We hear a lot about race problems in our society. And the Bible addresses racial prejudice. Treat others the way you want to be treated. If I was in the minority, I would not want to be singled out ...and treated as being different from someone else. So it addressed that problem of racial prejudice. God made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, Acts 17, 26. That means the blood in this man who's a different color than me is not any different than my blood. God made no distinction between them and us. Romans chapter 12, 10 and in verse 12. There's no difference in Jew and Gentile. If those two races are not any different, there's no other race that's any different. What addresses racial prejudice? I'll tell you something else, social disorder and chaos. Romans 13 says the answer to that is to have civil government. Well, what are we going to do about punishing those who, who do wrong? Why, why isn't an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? My neighbor steals from me, I go steal from him. Or my neighbor does me wrong, I go punch him in the eye. And the answer to that problem growing out of chapter 12 was civil government, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 13. It's a minister to God to thee for good. So the answer to social chaos, problems, disorder, it it addresses standards of morality. How how do I know what's right and wrong? The Bible tells us drunkenness is wrong, Galatians 5 and verse 21. Fornication is wrong, 1 Corinthians 6 and in verse 18. Stealing is wrong, Ephesians 4 and verse 25. And as Fletcher says, we go armed with a set of rules. There they are. And so... uh, Someone says, why don't you get drunk with it? No, I can't do that because it's wrong. Well, why don't you go stealing with us? No, I can't do that. Why don't you commit for it? No, it's wrong. Here's a standard that we go by. It addresses man's needs so he knows the difference in right and wrong. Here's something else it addresses. The hope for the future. One of the things man needs is he needs to look towards something that is brighter and better than the present. 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter is addressed to that. That there is a resurrection from the dead. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 addresses that, that there is the second coming and there's the hope from the resurrection of the dead. There's a need to be loved. John 3, 16 says, God loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there's a need for love. So here's a message that you are loved. Matthew chapter 22 addresses the love that we have for others. The first and the greatest commandment is love of the Lord God. That is, we're to love God. But secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. So it addresses the relationships of love. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that time and again the Bible addresses needs. Here's number 11, and that is man has a need to be busy and to work. Idleness is not good for man. There's a need for work, and the Bible tells him man won't work, neither should he eat. Let him that stole steal no more, but let him labor with his hands. Ephesians 4 and verse 28. Now that's just the beginning of a list. What I'm trying to illustrate is the Bible meets modern man's needs. Modern man needs to know his origin, his purpose, the problem of sin, how to be happy, relationships, etc., etc. And the Bible addresses every one of those needs. Here's the third and final thing we want to talk about. And I want us to see that truth is not relative. Relative means there's varying degrees. Now, there are some aspects of some commands that we recognize are relative. For example, the command to love. You could love to some degree and not as much as you should. Knowledge is the same thing. Throw in knowledge. And so you might have some knowledge, and knowledge is a relative thing. We understand that principle. But that's not what we're talking about here. Some have a concept that truth is relative. What's true for you may be different than for me. I hear people talk about your truth versus my truth. And, and that's your standard, but might have a different standard. And so we each determine truth for ourselves. Let's start with this. I want us to understand that truth is not subjective. What do we mean by subjective? Subjective means it varies from person to person and from situation to situation. For example, that situation ethics says, okay, lying is wrong in this circumstance and for me it's wrong. But now for you in your circumstance it might be right. So that's subjective. When I base my standard on what I think and you base your standard on what you think, that's subjective. When my standard is, this is what I've always been taught and you base your standard on what you've always been taught, that is subjective because that varies from person to person, from situation to situation. Let's look at Jeremiah 10, 23. Jeremiah said, It is not in man that walketh to direct his own footsteps. In other words, I don't decide for myself what's right. You don't decide for yourself what's right paraphrasing what Jeremiah said, truth is not subjective. That's the thing we just saw. Here's another passage. The proverb writer said the same thing, in in essence, in Proverbs 14 and in verse 12. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. In other words, there may be a way that I think, you know what, this seems like the right thing to do. I know it's not in harmony with the law and the books and, and the laws and the rules and and the maxim, I know it's not in agreement with that, but this seems like the right thing to do, but it might be wrong. And you may think just the opposite is the right thing to do, but the ends there are for the ways of death. Listen to this carefully. When truth is subjective, it deifies man. That's the problem with humanism. That's the problem with postmodernism. When truth is subjective, it deifies man, it makes man his own God. So when I'm left to make up my rules for myself, and I'll decide if it's right to, to lie, and I'll decide if fornication is okay, and I'll decide if stealing is okay, and I'll decide if drinking is okay, that, that's my decision. I'll make up the rule whether it's right or not. I've just made a God out of myself that deifies man. But let's go further. I want us to see that truth is objective. What do we mean by being objective? There is a standard that we go by that determines for me what's right and what is wrong, and I'm not determining that within myself. And I'm not determining that by the circumstance that's going to vary from situation to situation. Let's go to 1 John 3 and verse 4. Let's look at it it in its context. I am convinced that the point in 1 John 3 And in verse 4, let's get the verse and then we'll set the context. Verse 4 says, whoever commits sin uh, commits lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. King James says, whoever commits sin transgresses the laws." for sin is a transgression of the law. 90% of the time when you hear that verse quoted, it is quoted in the context of saying, here is what sin is. Let's define sin. It is a transgression of the law. Good point. Good passage to make the point. That's not really his point. He makes that point, but that's not really his point. What's his point? Well, let's look at the context. His context is dealing with the sons of God. Look at verse verse 1. Here's the privilege of being a son of God. What manner of love the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. What an honor it is to be a child of God. Beginning now at verse 3, his point is the children of God do not continue to practice sin. Well, look at verse verse 3. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. He tries to live pure. Let's skip verse 4. Let's go on down to verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. He's arguing for the fact that the child of God doesn't continue to make a practice of sin. How does verse 4 fit in that context? His point is the child of God has a law by which they live that keeps them from sinning. They have a standard by which they live. And you violate that standard of sin. But his point he's driving at is the fact that we have a standard by which we live. That's what I want us to see from 1 John 3 and in verse 4. There is a standard by which we live. That means truth is objective, not subjective. Let's go again. Here's a familiar passage, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know that passage, and you could finish all the way to the end of verse 17. Now verse 17 says it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. Here's what I learned from that. I learned the inspired word tells us right from wrong. How do I know what's right and how do I know what's wrong? Let's look at its context, by the way. Let's go back to 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. It talks about how the world lives. And he has a whole catalog of sin the world is involved in. What? Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unloving, unforgiving, despisers of good, traitors, Why does all that go on? Look at verse 8. Verse 8, here's why people live that way. Here's why people live that way. Because they resist the truth. They rejected the truth of God. They rejected the standard. What's the answer, verse 16? Point men back to the scriptures, which tells us what's right and wrong, verse 17. So again, the argument is here is a standard by which we live. Let's notice another. Let's go to Titus chapter 2. The grace of God, which brings salvation, teaches us. Here's the grace of God. What does it teach us? That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. So I'm learning from that. Grace teaches us what we should do and what we should not do. We're establishing the point that truth is subjective. Let's go one more time on that point, and then I want us to go to Matthew 12 to close. In 2 Timothy 2, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It makes a difference whether one obeys the truth or not. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason God would send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie might be condemned who do not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Here's what I learned from that. And that is those who obey the truth would be saved and those who did not would indeed be lost. The truth is objective. Now let's spend just a few moments talking about Matthew chapter 12. Those who have argued for situation ethics make an appeal to Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus violated the law and justified it by pointing to someone else who had also violated the law of Moses. And therefore, Jesus was suggesting this is a situation where the law is okay to be violated. And so let's answer that and let's talk about Matthew chapter 12. If you get into situation ethics discussion or postmodernistic thought with someone who claims to believe in the Bible somehow or at least to hold to some semblance of Scripture, they very well may make an appeal to Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus did this after all. You know, the the law changes from person to person and the circumstance. Jesus did that. So let's see what Matthew 12, verses 1 to 8 is about. Beginning at verse 1, that uh, Jesus uh, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now let's stop there just for a moment. Get the picture. They're, They're passing through the grain fields. They're not harvesting with a sickle. That's going to be important. The grain, but they're plucking grain as they walk through the grain fields and they're plucking because they're hungry and they're eating. Well, the Pharisees had a problem with that. Look at verse 2. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Keep in mind who said that. That was the Pharisees who said that. The Pharisees said, you and your disciples are doing things that are wrong to do on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that. And their rule was no labor on the Sabbath, not to work on the Sabbath, and that's working on the Sabbath. Plucking the grains is working on the Sabbath. They can't do that, they said. And Jesus responded saying to them, Have you not read that when David was hungry and, he, and, he, and those that were with him, that he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Have you not, have you not read that story? where David did, went in and he did that which was unlawful. You're not familiar with that? The implication some make from that is that Jesus is saying, sure, we violated the Sabbath law, but so did David. I mean, for I mean, why are you why are you criticizing me when you look at David? David did the same thing. He violated the Sabbath law, he violated the, the law of God. He went in and, and, and ate of the showbread, which was not lawful for him. And so we did the same thing. What's, what's the big deal? There are just times you violate the law. Is that the case? Well, let's, let's analyze that for a moment. We're going to come back to the rest of the verse section in just a moment. I want to establish, first of all, what Jesus was not saying. Jesus did not say this is a case where violating the law is okay. In this text or any other text, Jesus never said that. That's not his point, nor did he make that point. Nor did he say anything that sounded like making that point. He is not saying that violating the Sabbath law on this occasion is okay. In fact, Jesus did not even acknowledge violating the Sabbath law. Remember who said he violated the Sabbath law? That was the Pharisees. And they had said that time and again when he had worked miracles on the Sabbath day. Did Jesus violate the Old Testament law? And the answer is no. How do I know? 1 Peter 2 said there was no sin in him. He never sinned. Let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 of our text. Look at verse 7. You might underline. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Speaking to those very Pharisees, you would not have condemned. Now you might underline the next word. Guiltless. He's talking about the disciples. What they just did. He said they were guiltless. They hadn't done anything wrong. So did Jesus violate the Sabbath law and nor did his disciples? Well, Jesus never sinned. I know that much. And Jesus said the disciples were guiltless. They're not guilty of anything. Now, was eating on the Sabbath, plucking grain on the Sabbath, a violation of the Sabbath law? And the answer is no. The Deuteronomy 23 is not talking about the Sabbath law per se, but Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25 drew a distinction between putting a sickle to the field, harvesting the field, and plucking grain. You say, how do you know? Well, the text says you could walk through your neighbor's grain and you could pluck corn or you could pluck grain to eat. But you couldn't take a sickle to your neighbor's grain. So there is a distinction in the two. They're not working on the Sabbath day. Let's go back to verse 7. Was it unlawful to do this on the Sabbath? Did it violate the Sabbath law? Jesus said they were guiltless. He said they're not guilty. What Jesus is doing in this context is dealing with their inconsistency. What's he saying? Look at verse 4. Jesus said that what David did was unlawful. You say, how do you know it's unlawful? Because Jesus said so. That's how I know. Jesus said it was unlawful. And he deals with the fact that the disciples' act was lawful. He said, how do you know it was lawful? He said they were guiltless, verse 7. Verse 4 said one was guilty. Verse 7 says the other was not guilty. That's how I know. So here's his point. David committed an unlawful act, and you don't condemn him. The disciples do something that is lawful and you do condemn them. He is dealing with their inconsistency. When somebody does wrong, you justify that. When somebody doesn't do wrong, you condemn them. He's dealing with the inconsistency of the Pharisees. Matthew 7, or Matthew 12, rather, verses 1 to 8, in no way deals with and justifies the situation ethics concept. What have we seen in our study this morning? Hopefully we've answered the question, is the Bible still relevant today? By establishing the fact that relevance is based upon reliability. The Bible meets man's modern needs. And truth is not relative. It is not subjective. It is objective. And then looking at Matthew chapter 12 and the abuse that is made thereof. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge the faith that you have and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come all together?